Welcome to Dig Deep. Well, today we are wrapping up our series, Dysfunctional, and I don't know about you, but the word dysfunctional just seems a little bit harsh to me. I would never want to see that word show up on my resume. I would never want to overhear someone referring to me or my relationships as dysfunctional. It seems just a little too harsh of a word, but we've said in this series that our dysfunctional relationships are simply the relationships in our lives that have stopped functioning the way that they should, the way that we would like them to, and we all have relationships that fall into that category. Well, a few years ago, my husband and I were in a season of our marriage where we were struggling a little bit. We had just become parents of three kids, and due to some circumstances that made our communication break down, we knew we needed help navigating that season of life and that season of our marriage. And so we reached out and went to counseling for the first time. And if you know me well, or if you've listened to the podcast for a while, you know that I am a huge advocate for counseling, and that's in large part due to how positive our experience with it has been. But I resisted it at first. As you can imagine, I didn't like to admit that there was something in my life or in our relationship that needed to be fixed, that needed help. I resisted it big time. And a big part of that was that I thought I've really got it all together. I mean, I I struggle, of course, like everyone, but I grew up in an awesome family. I got a great education. I'm in a healthy, committed marriage to a man that I genuinely love. I have three wonderful, healthy kids who I love and who love me. I mean, I guess I'll go to counseling, but only to get some some quick tips to get some pointers to make me even stronger than I already am. I had a very prideful attitude about it. Well, I was caught off guard um, that counseling was not just about acquiring a bunch of quick tips to make your pretty strong relationships even stronger. It was a really formative experience for me. Our counselor is not a quick tip, give you a worksheet and then send you home type of counselor. She like a master counselor, gently uncovers layer after layer with really well-formed questions and gets to the bottom of what's really the issue in the relationship. And so in one particular session that was very, very memorable, it was pretty early on in our experience with her, she started asking me just some simple questions. I mean, almost get to know you type questions about my upbringing and my childhood and some of my formative years and formative experiences in life and in the world. And I'm answering them very simply. I mean, they were very straightforward questions with very straightforward answers. And then after a series of these questions, she asked one particular question and there was nothing about it that seemed really insightful or crazy, but for some reason, or in my opinion, for seemingly no reason at all, I started sobbing uncontrollably. And I mean like major, ugly cry fest. It was terrible. They had to wait patiently for me. The counselor and my husband just waited, handed me a box of tissues. I went through probably half of the box before we could keep going. And then our counselor patiently in a brief line of loving questions, helped me unearth from that point on that I have some real relational dysfunction in my life. And a lot of it is related to assigning blame in a conflict, defending myself, and placing a higher value on justice and what's right than on the actual relationship with the other person. 
And I left that session totally dumbfounded and thought, wow, I had no idea how messed up I am. I had no idea. I have got some issues. I mean, real issues. It is painful. I don't know if you've ever had an experience like that. It's painful to have your dysfunction put on display. And that is why for so many of us, we, we try our very best to hide our dysfunction, to hide our dysfunctional relationships from others. I mean, we don't bring those up as conversation starters. And if we're really good at this, we can even get good at hiding those things from ourselves to the point where we think we're pretty healthy and we've got it together. We don't even realize how dysfunctional some of our relationships are. But Jesus, as we're going to see today, does not shy away from dysfunction. Jesus doesn't avoid uncomfortable topics like divorce or daddy issues or messy conflicts or jaded pasts. Jesus walks right into the middle of dysfunctional situations. And God always has. I mean, if we go back to the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve chose to do things their own way, and they ended up with broken relationships, broken relationship with God, a broken relationship with each other, and a broken relationship with creation that had been perfect, living in perfect harmony up until that point. And in the midst of all that brokenness and dysfunction, we see God walking through the garden, calling to them, looking for them. In the New Testament, God describes himself as a father who never gives up on his wayward son. He describes himself as a shepherd who searches endlessly for the lost sheep. He won't stop until he finds it. He is the God who walks toward brokenness. He walks right into dysfunctional relationships, dysfunctional situations, and he puts his finger on the heart of our dysfunction. So today, as we conclude this series, I want us to look at a time where Jesus walked right into a situation that was full of relational dysfunction and ask, what can we learn from that interaction? This interaction takes place in John chapter 4, and it's one of Jesus's most famous dialogues with someone. He's traveling through a region, and he is thirsty. And so he goes to the local well, Jacob's well, and there he meets the Samaritan woman. And we pick up in verse 7 of John chapter 4. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Now let's pause here for a minute so I can give you some cultural context to reveal just how many social barriers Jesus was crossing in this interaction. See, centuries before, most of the Jews were exiled to Babylon. But of those who stayed behind, some of them chose to intermarry with the Canaanite people who lived in the same region, and they formed a new tribe, the Samaritans. Well, the Samaritans took elements of their Jewish religion, their Jewish heritage, and they took on elements of the Canaanite religion and essentially formed a new hybrid religion. So the Jews considered the Samaritans to be both racial inferior, and religiously, they considered them to be heretics. 
Now, they also, the two groups, had a long history of conflict relating to the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem, which led to increased religious tensions, but also political tension between the two groups. So a Jew, like Jesus, talking to a Samaritan crossed racial, political, and religious barriers. But that's not all, because this is a Samaritan woman that Jesus is talking to. Jesus is crossing a significant cultural gender barrier because it was scandalous for any Jewish man at the time to speak with a woman that he didn't know in public, much less a woman with her reputation, as we'll see in a few minutes. But Jesus doesn't seem to care, and he asks the woman for a simple drink of water. And she says, how can you ask me for a drink of water? In verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And in verse 16, Jesus does something that seems a little strange. He seems to completely change the subject. He says to her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. And this is where this interaction moves from an awkward social situation that's crossing a lot of social boundaries to a very personal conversation about the deep dysfunction in this woman's life. We are learning here that this woman is a social outcast because of her dysfunctional relationships with men. She has a long history of broken relationships, broken marriages, and now it's implied in the text that within her own community, she's developed quite a reputation and has broken relationships with people. See, this interaction, says, takes place around noon, right in the middle of the day. And many Bible scholars have pointed out that this would be a very unusual time for a woman to come to the well to draw water. Most women would travel together to the well in the early morning before the heat of the day, and they would do it so that they had the water supply for the whole day, for that day's washing and cooking and bathing. And so what's implied is that this woman no longer travels to the well with the other women from her town early in the morning, but instead chooses to brave the heat of the day to avoid those tense relationships, probably with women who have labeled her and have no interest in associating with her at all. And so in this interaction, Jesus puts on display the dysfunction between the Jews and the Samaritan the dysfunctional relationships that this woman has with men, and the dysfunctional relationships she appears to have with most of her community. Jesus walks right in and calmly and gently puts his finger right on the heart of all of that dysfunction. 
And so when it seems like he's changing the subject, he's not changing the subject at all. In a matter of moments, in what appeared to be an interaction that centered around him asking her for a drink of water to revive him physically, it became clear that this was an interaction where he was offering her living water that was going to revive her spiritually. In this series, we've looked at our dysfunctional relationships, relationships marked by conflict and misunderstanding, relationships that are broken down seemingly beyond repair. And it's refreshing to me to see that Jesus walks into our situations and he puts his finger firmly but gently right on our hearts and says, you know what your problem is? You're thirsty. You're thirsty. This woman, for whatever reason, had a long line of deeply dysfunctional marriages and sexual relationships with men. And maybe that's you. Or maybe your dysfunction is something else. Maybe you're like me, and the need to be right has damaged some of your relationships beyond repair. Maybe you struggle with an angry streak that has left you with a reputation. Maybe you struggle with an addiction that robs you of opportunities and alienates you from those that you love. Maybe you have a hunger for the newest, latest, greatest thing, and it infects your relationships with a subtle envy that keeps your relationships from growing deep and genuine and keeps people on the surface with you. All of our dysfunctional relationships, Jesus is pointing out, regardless of what the dysfunction looks like, are just an extension of our dysfunctional relationship with God. We have a deep, spiritual thirst within us, and all of our dysfunction stems from that thirst. And we keep trying again and again and again, in our own ways, trying to fix things, to make things better. We want to have a better second marriage than our first. We want to give our kids something better than we had. We are in constant pursuit of the friends and community who won't let us down, who won't disappoint us. And like physical thirst, it's never enough. We keep coming back frustrated in need of more and more. And the problem is that one of the number one ways that we medicate our dysfunction is by comparing ourselves to others and trying to make ourselves feel better by saying, well, at least I'm not as messed up as they are. And the reality is we are all dysfunctional. That is why Jesus came. Pastor and author Tim Keller points out that it's no mistake that directly before this interaction with the Samaritan woman at the well, Jesus has an interaction with Nicodemus, a man who was different from this woman in every possible way. Nicodemus is a respected Jewish male. He is a civic leader. He's devout religiously. He's a moral person. He's prosperous. He is looked to by people in his community as the gold standard. I mean, he is the guy to be. He's the polar opposite of the woman at the well. And Jesus has an interaction with him just the chapter before in John chapter 3. And when he meets with him, he doesn't say, you know, way to go, Nicodemus. You've really got everything together. You're doing a really great job. Just keep it up and, and you'll make it. No, he says some really interesting words to Nicodemus. He says, you need to be born again. And Tim Keller writes, 
It's as if Jesus is saying, what did you have to do, Nicodemus, with being born? Did it happen due to your skillful planning? Not at all. You don't earn or contribute anything to being born. It's a free gift of life. And so it is with the new birth. Salvation is by grace. There is no moral efforts that can earn or merit it. You must be born again. And so in both interactions, Jesus is pointing directly to the heart of the matter. All the brokenness we feel in this life, including our broken relationships, is an extension of our broken relationship with God himself. And when Jesus puts his finger on the heart of the Samaritan woman's dysfunction, it wasn't to say, hey, you really need to get this cleaned up. He's saying, this is why I've come, to heal what is broken, to restore what has been lost, and to give you real life. And it's beautiful that just a chapter before, he says the same thing to Nicodemus the guy who has a great resume and doesn't seem to have any dysfunction in his life. He says he needs it just as much. We all need the living water that wells up to eternal life. And it's not just a ticket to heaven. It's a living, bubbling spring of water that will flow inside of you now. It gives life to the dead things in your life. And the woman at the well sees the golden opportunity that has been dropped in her lap. And so we read in verse 28 that she leaves her water jar and goes back to her town and says to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of the town and made their way toward him. And when they reached Jesus, we read that the people asked him if he'd be willing to stay with them for a few days. And Jesus accepts their invitation And I love this part of the story because this isn't just a quick public conversation that Jesus has in passing. Jesus went and stayed in a Samaritan village. He slept in Samaritan homes. He was not afraid of that dysfunction. He made himself at home right in the center of all of that craziness, right in the center of the dysfunction. And the people in that that town had their lives changed forever by their time with Jesus. And he wants to do the same for you and for me. He wants to heal us by restoring our relationship with himself. That is the root issue that we need to address. And so if you're listening and you have never accepted the grace of Jesus, that he offers so that you can be in restored relationship with God, that is the step that you need to take to restore that relationship, to acknowledge, I cannot do this on my own. I am broken. I am dysfunctional. My way isn't working for me. And accept the grace that Jesus offered by coming and living a perfect life, dying the death that we deserved, and then raising from the dead to offer us eternal life. And once we've accepted that message, he wants to start healing the broken and dysfunctional things in our lives right now. This is a well of living water, a spring that wells up to eternal life, and it starts healing things now. And so what do we do? What's our takeaway for today? Well, we can take our cue from the woman at the well who we're told in verse 28, laid down her water jar in exchange for the chance to just have time 
with Jesus. And you and I need to lay down our jars. Lay down our jars. And that sounds weird. I mean, what are, what are our jars? Our jars are the things that we look to to try to solve our problems on our own. We run back and forth to the well, but it's never enough. I mean, the problems keep manifesting themselves in our lives and in our relationships over and over and over again. And so what is your jar? Maybe your jar, your way of trying to solve your relational problems is to let your brain roll the issues around and around and around in hopes of cranking out some sort of analytical solution. You're convinced that if you just work at it hard enough, you could find the solution. But you never find that perfect conclusion. And instead, you just lose sleep and live distracted every day by the brokenness of that relationship. Or maybe for you, the jar is trying to get people on your side of the conflict because it would make you feel better about that dysfunctional relationship in your life. And so you present yourself in a certain way on social media or in your interactions with others. You share information in a way that draws them to your side to make you feel better about the level of dysfunction. Or maybe your jar is choosing to give up on relationships altogether. To walk away and say, well, you know, haters are going to hate and I just can't live with that and so I'm going to give up. I'm going to throw in the towel and move on and hope that I can find something better in the future. We try all these things again and again and again, but we feel our thirst. We know our dysfunction We know these patterns of behavior, these habits, these efforts to try to fix things over and over again with no relief. But Jesus is the only one who can heal our broken relationships because he's the only one who can offer us that living water, a peace and satisfaction that runs deep and makes the way forward clear. It's hard for us to imagine This metaphor, with our first world experience of running water easily accessible to all of us, but in an arid climate and with only a well to draw water from, the thought of a bubbling fresh water spring was unbelievable. I mean, something like that would have drawn thousands of people who would have followed it to its source, knowing that its running water would lead to life. They would have followed it wherever it led. And the same is true for us. It's only sitting quietly at the feet of Jesus and saying, Jesus, show me the way forward. Show me the way that leads to life. And in my most dysfunctional relationships, when I'm willing to call them that, like my relationship with a family member that a few years ago felt almost completely hopeless, to my relationship with my husband when things veer off course and we are completely out of step with each other, to my relationships with friends who have hurt me or let me down or hurt someone I love, in those relationships, all the stress and anxiety and anger and venting, it all changes in the presence of Jesus. Those emotions are still there. They're still valid, but they change somehow when I go quietly to Jesus directly. And he lovingly 
shows the way forward, the way to healing. And it's usually not something I want to hear. It's something like the verses that we've looked at so far in this series. Honor one another above yourselves. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. And if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And here's what I want us to catch today as we conclude this series. This isn't a list of things that God wants you to do. These verses from Romans 12 are a description of who Jesus himself is. Look at these verses again through that lens. Honor one another above yourselves. Even though it seemed crazy to everyone present, Jesus washed his disciples' feet, and that was just the precursor to him humbling himself to the point of taking on our punishment, being crucified, dying a criminal's death, experiencing broken relationship with his Father all on our behalf. Or how about rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. Even though Jesus knew he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead, he wept with Lazarus's mourning sisters. He attended weddings and funerals. He felt what we feel. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. After being brutally tortured and now on the brink of death, Jesus looked up to heaven and asked his father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. The king of heaven was born into a dysfunctional family tree in a barn to a poor carpenter and his wife. He humbled himself to the point of humanity to be with us. And if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Romans 5.10 reminds us that Jesus came for us while we were enemies of God. And Jesus didn't just offer us a drink of water physically. He offers us living water that will never run dry. Living water that will restore us spiritually. See, these aren't just a list of guiding principles for us to memorize. These are life-giving truths that are whispered to us in the quiet by the one who loves us and wants to show us the way to real life. That's why these words have power. They have power because they're rooted in a relationship with a person, in a relationship with the God who shows us these truths by living them out in his own character, in the person of his son, Jesus. And so in those relationships that have come to mind for you throughout this series, over and over again, when was the last time that you got alone with God, where you came to the banks of the river of the living water and said, okay, God, this is a mess. This is dysfunctional. I'll do whatever you say. Lead me forward. Show me the way that leads to life. He's not afraid of our dysfunction. He walks right into the center of it and offers us the way that leads to life.
And so I hope that in this series, you have heard the message of hope that healing is possible. And it's possible because Jesus came to heal our most broken relationship, our relationship with God himself. And then he offers us living water. He offers us the way forward. And it might be counterintuitive. It might be countercultural, but it is the way that leads to life. It's the way that leads to healing for our dysfunctional relationships. And so I'm so grateful that you've joined me for this series. I look forward to seeing you back here next week. We're going to have a mini episode next week to get ready for Christmas. And that will be full of a bunch of announcements too, about what the podcast is going to look like moving forward at the start of the new year. I am so grateful that you're on this journey with me and that you tune in and listen. As always, you can send any comments or questions or thoughts that you have to me at jessalston.com. You can use the contact page and get in touch with me that way. I hope you have a wonderful week and until next time, remember to dig deep.